Just as we learned earlier, that any person can make any stipulation, any stipulation he desires to make, in buying and selling, no one can tell me what stipulation to make when I buy something or I sell something. I can do what I want. All of the laws we learned is if there is no specific stipulation. But if there is, there is. The same law applies. You can create any stipulation in the laws of renting. There can be any conditions made between the owner and the renter, between the owner and the tenant. The Rambam establishes a, an axiom here. The definition of renting is a short-term purchase. If I'm renting something for a day, then I'm buying it for a day. The term is over, then my purchase has ended. Whenever a person's sale of property would be valid, he can rent the property, and that is valid as well. If a guy has no right to sell, you know, like the guy who sells the Brooklyn Bridge, how can he sell the Brooklyn Bridge? It's not his. Well, if he can't sell the Brooklyn Bridge, he can't rent the Brooklyn Bridge. He can't rent stuff that it's not rentable. There's an exception. If someone has a right to produce, he doesn't own the land, but he has a right to the produce, and he's a of in that case, he can rent, lease the right of the produce without selling the land. Now comes an interesting situation. We know in the Jewish calendar, the meaning of a leap year is that instead of 12 months, the year suddenly contains 13 months. Wow. So if somebody leases, rents the house to a tenant for a year, then the Sabra of that year happens to be a leap year. Well, who gets the benefit? You know, there's two interpretations. One interpretation is that I'm renting your house for 12 months and I'm paying $100 a month. That's $1,200. Or I'm renting your house for a year and I'm paying $1,200. But what if the year has 13 months? Do I pay $1,200 or $1,300? Do I pay for the year or do I pay for the month? Good question. So when a guy rents or leases a house for a year, and the year is a leap year, the tenant benefits. Why? Because his lease was for one year. The fact that his year suddenly has another month, well, that's his bonus. The fact is the contract read here. What if the contract reads months? I'm renting for 12 months. In that case, guess what? The landlord benefits. Because 12 months are over, there's a 13th month, you better pay rent. What if the agreement says months and year? Whether we set a particular coin per month, or 12 of those coins for a year, regardless of which one he said first, the landlord gets the benefit. Why? Because real estate is always assumed to be in the domain of the owner. So therefore, possession is nine-tenths of the law. The owner is assumed to be the owner of the real estate. The tenant wants to acquire, he has to prove that he has a right to acquire. So when there's a doubt, the owner gets the benefit. So also the owner who says, I leased my house to you for this and this term. And the tenant says, No, there was no term between us. I just entered into a rental unspecified. Or the tenant says, What are you talking about? I rented it for 10 years or any length of time. What is the problem? The problem is there's no lease. There's no document. There's no contract. So there's a dispute. Because clearly the owner is the owner. The tenant has to bring proof. Because it is assumed always to be in the domain of the owner unless proven otherwise. And if he could not bring proof, the owner can swear, can take a rabbinic oath, and can evict the tenant because there is no contract, there's no lease. You've got to always hang on to your lease. Gimel 3. If the tenant claims, I have an agreement with you, I have to pay so and so much money rent, I paid it. Last Wednesday, the owner says, What are you talking about? You never paid me rent. Whether it was with a document, or with witnesses, the fact is that there is a debate whether the rent was paid or not. The agreement, being with contract or with witnesses, doesn't help us know whether the rent was paid or not. In if the demand came within 30 days of the agreement, the tenant must bring proof. It just happened. Show me when you paid me. You have a receipt, you have witnesses. A yitin or, he has to pay the rent. He can go to the courts, and the courts can issue a ban of ostracism, as we learned earlier, upon anybody who took money without right. A yitin olav, or he should demand the money that he owes him, and have him 
take a rabbinic oath. That is, if it was within 30 days. What if the owner demanded after 30 days, even on the 30th day, the owner has to bring proof. Because we assume that within 30 days, the rent was paid. Or here, the canon gets the right to take an oath and walk. So also if he rented it from him. And it was specified that the rent would be paid annually. And the demand came within the first year. So the tenant again has to bring proof. It was an annual commitment. We're still within the year. Prove that you paid it. If you paid it after the year, even the 29th of El, which is the last day of the year, he's obviously talking about a Hebrew year here. The renter has to pay, has to bring proof. The bottom line is, is that normal people don't pay a chunk of money for rent without a receipt. You have to get a receipt when you pay something. Now the plot thickens. Somebody leases, rents a house to someone else using a contract that's all good. Lasts a shonen for 10 years. Great. The problem is, although it says 10 years, it doesn't have a date. So the question is, which 10 years? When did the 10 years start? When did they finish? The tenant says, You know what? This is a 10 year lease. We're one year into it. I got nine years to go. And boy, do I got a rent. The landlord says, What are you talking about? You've been there for 10 years already. Get out. Your rent is really low. The tenant has to be proof. Remember, we learned earlier that the house is always assumed to be in the domain of the owner. If he doesn't bring proof, you The owner can take a rabbinic oath and evict him. Hey, along the same lines, if somebody rents an orchard with the intent of enjoying its fruits, an orchard is where fruits grow. We think fruits grow in Gelson's or Ralph's. They grow in orchards. Big trucks bring them to Gelson's or Ralph's. Or something, this orchard was entrusted to him for security, for a loan for a period of 10 years. So here I have an orchard. It's either mine because I rented it or it's mine because it's collateral. In the interim, you know what? The orchard, she don't work. It stopped producing fruits. It's all dried out. So what are you going to do? I have a right to it for 10 years. It's now year six and Gurish. You can't even get an apricot. Well, the tenant has a right to sell the lumber. A lot of trees there. A lot of dead trees. A lot of lumber. With the money, the proceeds of the sale of the lumber, you can buy new land, a new orchard, maybe smaller, but one that has fruits. He can eat and enjoy the produce until the end of the lease, until the end of the period of collateral. The Gufa, you want to show you off to a So, what about the body of the trees that became dried or harvested? Shnei and both of them are forbidden. Both the landlord and the tenant may not use it because of the law of the prohibition of paying and accepting interest, as we will yet learn. We touched upon it, but not really. Both the lender and the borrower, because if either of them takes the body of the trees, that's above the issue at hand, and that could be payment for considered interest, which is forbidden for borrower and lender, as we will enumerate soon when we enter into those laws. What if there is a Contract, a lease, a renting, or a lease of security, where it says years, plural, but it doesn't say how many years. Years could be two, three, or twenty. Bala paid us the owner of the produce says, Sholish three. Or Bala Karta the owner of the land says, two, minimum, plural is two. Prices went up. And then this renter or the lender went and ate the fruits. The fruits are to be assumed to be in the domain of the guy who ate them until the other guy brings proof. The owner. What if the renter or lender consumed these fruits? We know for a fact that he consumed them for three consecutive years. And now there is no lease. The Omar and he says, It wasn't three years or two years, it was five years. He ate of this produce for three years. The owner says, It is three years, you're out of here. They said, Well, if you think it's more than three years, bring your lease. The Omar he says, The lease is lost. The tenant is believed. Why? Why would the tenant be believed? Over the landlord. The tenant says it's five years or ten years. The landlord says it's three. Because if the tenant was a liar, if he desired, Omar, having used it before everyone's eyes for three years, he could have said, I bought it. To prove I bought it, I've been enjoying it for three years. This is called the Chazoka. I've established myself as the owner. Because once you enjoy something for three years, you could argue it's yours. That's one of the forms of acquisition. Therefore, believe me when I say it's not mine. Believe me when I said I'm a tenant, but the term of the lease is not three years. It's five or ten years. What if somebody 
in one way or another caused his produce to enter into somebody else's house, without him knowing about it. She tore, he fooled him. Until he allowed him to bring his produce in. And he left him. And he went. Let's say a guy's going on a trip. And he has a lot of produce. So he finds a way to trick a guy who has a storage facility or a house to allow him to put the produce in the house, whatever the deal is. But it was only supposed to be for 10 minutes. And then he's gone. So now your produce is in my house and you're in Mexico. The owner has a right to sell some of that produce in order to hire a team of employees who will unload, remove the produce from the house. He sells produce, gets money, hires employees and puts them in the street. You can't put your produce in my house because you tricked me. Now he says, Omidus Hasidus, he would be an act of piety. If he was a mensch, she a deal of he would bring a declaration to the court and say, hey, I do declare, this is what I did. The Iskiro mimixes today a mock, and then maybe the courts would supervise that a little more produce would be sold, a place would be rented, a storage house. It's a mitzvah to return a lost item to the owner. The owner is in Mexico. The lost item is going to sit in the street. Even though the whole thing was dishonest to begin with. But let the courts decide that. The last paragraph of this chapter is an interesting halacha. Eight. If person A rents a mill from person B, what is a mill? Where you grind flour, where he's going to grind, Esrim saw 20 measures of grain every month. That's going to be his rent. I'll rent you my mill, but you have to pay rent. What's your rent going to be? Every month, you have to give me 20 saw of free grinding service. That's your rent. Don't pay me cash. Pay me grinding service. I'll bring you my raw stuff, and you'll grind flour for me free. That's your rent. Time went on, an amazing thing happened. The guy who owns the mill struck it rich, and he doesn't need the guy to grind the flour for him. He can go to Gelson's and buy flour. No longer does he have to take his raw material and his reins and bring them. Ah, he goes and buys the best. He gets it delivered by Amazon. The question is, what happens with the rental obligation? The rental obligation is a rental obligation. I, the guy doesn't need my services. So he says, if the renter has grain to grind for himself, or he can take in grain for someone else, and somehow make or save money, he's coerced, leading to give to me the money. So the value of grinding 20, weight, 20 measures. Why? Because not doing so, not doing so would be acting like the sodomites, like the people from Sodom. Anytime one person can benefit and the other doesn't lose, we have to do it. The guy can grind for himself or take in other people's grain and save or make money. Why not? Give it to the owner instead of his free labor. What if he doesn't have grain to grind? He doesn't have people to bring in and grind grain to pay him. The renter could say to the newly became rich owner, listen, my friend, I have no money. As my lease says, I'm willing to grind 20 saw per month for you for free. You may not, but sorry, if you don't need it, sell my grinding time, sell it to someone else. It's a commodity. So also anything similar. End of chapter 7. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of schirus, renting, leasing, and so on. Also segueing into employee, employer relationships. Pedic Shmini, chapter 8. We are very familiar with the word sharecropper. We're very familiar with the word renter, leasee. So here he goes on to say, both the scenario where somebody rents a field from another Lizora to plant it. His plan is he's going to plant seeds in this field. So he rents the field that belongs to the landlord. A kerem, or another scenario is he rents a vineyard. And the intent is he's going to enjoy its produce. The field belongs to someone else, but he's going to work it, plant it, do whatever he has to do, enjoy its fruits. What is the owner going to get? Money. So he's renting a field for money. That's one case. A Or next situation, he's renting the field not for money, but he agrees to give him a particular set amount of produce. Today, for example... He rented this field, the Eslin Kor, for 20 Kor of grain a year. He rented this vineyard, the with 20 jugs of wine a year. That is the rent. The rent is 20 Kor a year, or in the case of the vineyard, 20 jugs a year.
Okay, I'm trying to find the modern-day equivalent of Kur, but uh, for some reason I'm not seeing it here. Okay, but that's the deal. Shnehen din echo deshlehen. Whether it's a cash deal or it's a specific amount of produce, they both have the same law. Vasecher, nepedus, except for the fact that one who rents the field and pays produce, kuhanikro, there's another word for him. He is called a choker or chocher, and that's his deal. He uses the field and he pays a set amount of produce. Bays on a kabbal sadef, somebody takes it upon himself to receive the usage of a field, a pardis or an orchard. What is the purpose? To work with it. The tenant's responsibility is he will expend whatever expenditures needs to be expended. And what about the owner of the land? He's going to get a percentage of the produce. In other words, all he does is he supplies the raw land. The renter covers all the expenses, does all the work. But in merit of the fact that the landlord lets him have the land, he gives him a percentage of the, of, of the produce. Sometimes the deal is a third of the produce. Sometimes it's a quarter. Whatever deal they make between themselves. This is not called a chocher or a chocher, as we said earlier. This is called a mechabel, like a sharecropper. So now the question is, we said that this sharecropper has to pay the expenses. Which expenses does he have to pay, and which expenses does the landowner have to pay? So he says that anything that's for the sake of the land itself, the landowner has to pay, but anything that goes the extra mile, either the renter who rents for produce or the sharecropper has to pay. It's the axe or tool that's used to break up the land, and the containers used to carry away the earth. They had Lee, the jugs, the Akkad, and the pictures, who created by or similar, should deal with my mind with which water is drawn. Al Balakarka, the landowner, has to pay that. Those are the basic tools of the trade. The Hatita Samakemish and Akapsin by my mind, but digging the irrigation, the irrigation canals and ditches. Alachecher, that's the renter for produce, Ayamakabal or the sharecropper. Gimel, Hasecher, the renter, Ayamakabal or the sharecropper, who receives Sada Field Mechavere from his fellow, Lishonim Muates, for a limited amount of years. And when we talk about years in the land business, we, we refer to the sabbatical year, so a good number of years is a seven year cycle. If somebody receives the land, for use for a few years, less than a seven-year cycle. He should not plant flax in it without special permission. What's the deal with flax? As the Rambam explains in his commentary to the Mishnah, the roots of the flax plant remain in the land for a long time and therefore deplete its nutrients. So, unless defined otherwise, when someone has a short-term lease, flax should not be used. Obviously, if that's the condition of the lease, flax should not be planted. Obviously, if that's the condition of the lease, it's not a problem. What if he rented the land, a kibbler, became a sharecropper with it? For seven years, meaning seven years of planting, then, even though it's not specified, there's no reason why you shouldn't plant flax the first year, because it actually takes seven years to get out of the system of the earth. And he's going to be working the land for seven years, so the landowner will not be losing. When we talk about a lease to grow things for seven years, it means seven productive years. In that case, the sabbatical year is not one of the seven. But if he rented it, or went into a relationship of sharecropping for for a seven-year period, a sabbatical, in that case, that includes the sabbatical year. That the sabbatical year is included in the count. Now, what if something basic, very fundamental, very basic goes wrong? If somebody rents the land for produce, or someone becomes a sharecropper from someone else, what kind of land, what kind of field is it? It is a field that's parched and needs water, or it's an orchard of trees. So he rents a field that needs constant water, or he rents an orchard of trees. Along that field, there was a spring which gave water, and the water from the spring was used to irrigate the field. Just his luck, that spring dries up, no more spring. Or... But the large water source a little further down, the large river, keeps going. So all he has to do is work much harder. He has to go to the river and carry back water because the spring is gone. It's possible for him to bring buckets of water. Or the case where he rented an orchard. What is an orchard? An orchard is land with trees. And what happens is the trees are gone. The trees get cut down or whatever the situation is. Now the question is, does the deal still hold? He lost his spring and he lost his, or some of his trees. He does not discount the amount of payments that he, I'm sorry, he does not discount, reduce the amount of payments he has to pay because... It's not necessarily the other guy's fault. Maybe it's his fault. Maybe it's his muzzle. Who knows whose bad luck it is? So therefore, being that it's localized, it's his issue. 
However, if it's a regional issue where all the water is getting dried up and all the trees are disappearing, for example, what's a good example of a regional issue? The whole river dries up. There's no water for miles. In that case, his commitment to give X amount of produce for year for rent can be reduced. What if the landlord is standing in the field? And he says to the renter, I am renting you this parched field which needs water. I am renting or leasing to you this orchard. And in that case, after he stood there and pointed to it, the water source dries up. And the trees are cut down. In this case, he can and should reduce the amount of produce he has to pay. Why? Because he's right there on location. And he said, as it is right now, with the water source, with the trees. Therefore, we deduce that if he did not stand within it, and he said, in this parched field, I'm leasing to you, or this orchard, and the spring, which is the water source, dries up, or the trees are cut down. He may not reduce his payments because he was not standing right there defining anything. Now, again, the big debate is when the water source dried up or when the trees were cut down or, 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 or dried up, whose bad luck is that? That's the question here. So again, if it's regional, it's something else. But if it's localized, then it is the renter. Along the same lines, hey, if somebody rents a field, or somebody has a sharecropper relationship, in a field, and locusts, grasshoppers, attack. Or it was beaten up by some other condition, drought or what have you. So now, just his luck. He went and just rented or entered into a sharecropper agreement with this field. The locust and the bad weather condition just beat up the field. So the question is, in if this situation occurred to most of the fields in that region, then the renter, the sharecropper, can reduce his commitment. How could I have such a depending upon his loss? However, but if it did not affect most of the fields in that region, he cannot reduce his commitment. Even though all of his fields got beaten up. Because maybe it's his problem. Maybe he's not praying enough. Maybe he's not doing things right. But if all of his payments, I'm sorry, if all of his fields became dried up, even though many of the fields received this light, he cannot reduce his payment. Because it appears that he is the source of the bad luck. Necessarily, his fields got hit. Next scenario. The owner of the field took out a condition. That he will plant wheat. Those of us who are not farmers don't know that much about what planting a particular crop does to the land. But it does a lot. And there are so many conditions prevailing. So if the landowner said, I am leasing you this land, you can sow, you can plant wheat. And he went and instead of Sowing wheat, he sowed barley. Or he didn't plant anything. He planted and nothing grew. Even though locusts came or a drought came and most of the area was hit. He cannot reduce his rent commitment. Why? Because he didn't keep the deal. Because the deal was he would plant wheat. And he planted barley or he didn't plant at all. Yeah, but how would that be affecting the locusts or the drought or whatever? It doesn't matter. You can't deviate from the agreement. You deviated from the agreement, you pay. If the crop did not take, how long must he continue to work at it and plant it again and again? As long as that locale is fit to be planted. A renter, a cobbler, a sharecropper, who receives soda field from his fellow. Now the question is, when he finishes that particular cycle, how does he harvest? There are several ways to harvest. One is you take a tool, like a sickle or what have you, and you cut down the, the grains. In that case, the roots remain in the ground. Another way of doing it is you uproot it. Now the question is, it's not his land. Does he cut the produce at the point of the earth and leave the roots, or does he uproot and take out everything? Good question. So he says here now in six, the local custom is where they use a sickle and they cut yipsa. That's what he should do. He's not permitted to uproot, because obviously this is the culture. We want to leave the roots in the ground. But in the place where it's customary to uproot, leaving no roots in the ground, he should uproot. He may not cut, leaving roots in the ground. Both the landlord and the tenant may stop one another. In the community where it's customary that after you harvest, you plow, he should plow. 
In places where it's customary that if there are some trees in the field, the trees get rented as well. Maskinan, in that case, they're concluded they're included in this rental agreement. Even though it's not specified. It's a place where the prevailing custom is they don't rent trees that are here and there in the field. The renter has no trees. Even though he's paying more than the usual price. Before we said he's paying the usual price or less. Here we say he's paying more. It really depends upon the local custom whether trees are included or not. What if somebody rents a field from his fellow? His commitment is he's going to pay rent 10 cores of wheat. And now this field is smitten. And it produced wheat, but really bad quality. He has to pay a particular volume of produce as rent. He could take the lousy produce because that's what that field produced. He doesn't have to go to Gelson's and buy good produce. What if the produce was gorgeous? He cannot say to the landlord, I'm going to go to the uh, Persian market. I'm going to get a good deal, and I'm going to buy you produce, and I'm going to keep the top-of-the-line produce at this field. No. He has to pay the produce that this field produced. If the deal was that he rents from him a vineyard, and he has to give him a certain amount of jugs of wine, or in this case, ten baskets of grapes, these grapes went sour after they were harvested. Now he has sour grapes. So also, in the case of sheaves of grain, that were smitten after they were harvested, he can give the owner whatever it is, because that's what grew in that field. However, if the deal was he gives him ten pictures of wine, produced wine from this vineyard, the hechness and the wine went sour. Well, who knows when the wine went sour? And who knows why the wine went sour? Maybe it was the guy's fault he doesn't know how to produce. Maybe he had bad luck. Maybe he didn't pray enough. He has to deliver good wine. Now, you know, everybody's a wise guy. Here's the story of a wise guy. What if he took the field and he had to deliver a hundred sheaves of aspasta? Aspasta is fairly inexpensive cattle fodder. It's not human food. It's cattle fodder, a much cheaper level of food. Some say it's clover. But he translates it here as camel fodder. Now, what happened? First, this guy, this renter, was, was a hookah. He went and planted uh, some other species. He figured he'll beat the system. You know any people like that? And then he went and plowed chikshak. He got his good crop. Then he went chikshak and plowed. And then he planted this cattle fodder. And it produced the most disgusting grade of cattle fodder. So he says, hey, that's your problem, Mr. Landlord. This is what it produced. Oh, not so simple. Who asked you to plant wheat first? First he planted the cattle fodder. And then he plowed it. And then he planted it again. Camel fodder. And then he got smitten. Here he cannot give him the lousy grade of produce. He has to go to Gelson's and buy him. By the way, for those who may be learning with us online, Gelson's is a store where everything costs twice as much. And it's on our corner. But when it's on sale, it's a bargain. He gives him a good camel fodder, because he changed the deal. When you change the deal, you do the crime, you do the time. Anything similar. What if somebody rents a field from a colleague? So the landowner says, no. He says, no what? He says, plow or weed. Take the weeds out. The first thing you need to do is take the weeds out. You can't plant anything when there's weeds all over the place because the weeds suck the energy out of the soil. And the guy says, leave me alone. I'm the renter. I don't need to weed. I got a system. What difference does it make to you if I weed or not? I'm going to give you your share anyway. You don't listen to him. Listen, you're a very temporary tenant of mine. Tomorrow you're gone. Mañana you're not here. And it's just going to produce a bunch of weeds. So I need you to do what farmers do. I need you to remove the weeds. Even if he says to listen to me. You're worried about what happens to your land. When I'm done, I will plow it. You don't listen to him. You have to follow the custom of the farming community of the locale. Test nine. What if somebody rents a field with the intent of planting barley? Again, every particular species of plantings has its ups and downs. He should not plant wheat. He shouldn't be a wise guy. Why? Because the landlord gave it to him with the intent of planting barley, not wheat. Why would the landlord care if he planted wheat? I'm glad you asked. Because the landlord knows that wheat exhausts the soil, just depletes the soil more than barley. Barley is easier on the soil. Therefore, the contract said barley. This guy went and he says, what's the difference? I'll do wheat. I can make a better profit. If he leased the field to plant wheat, you can plant something that's easier on the soil. He may use it in a plant side in barley. Kitnis, if he planted, if his original intent, the agreement was to plant beans or legumes, legumes are much easier on the soil than grains. Uh, 
Tavua, if his deal was to plant grains, he may plant legumes. That's in Israel. But in Babylon and in similar places, the opposite is true concerning the soil. He should not plant legumes or beans. Because in Babylon and other similar places, it's necessarily the legume type thing that weakens the soil. Now comes an interesting question. What if somebody rents a field in whatever deal he does, sharecropping or what have you, for a limited amount of years? This fellow cannot and should not receive a share of the wood that grows from the wild fig trees. The wood that grows from the wild fig trees grows big and strong, and from this you make beans. Takes a long time to produce a bean, many years. He's going to come in, chick-chock, take a bean, uh-uh-uh. Your rental agreement, your leasing agreement is not long enough for you to be able to benefit from the long-term wood here. Again, the sharecropper gets nada, nothing. From the beans of the wild fig trees or anything similar, less than seven years, he gets nothing. He also does not get the appreciation in the value of the field due to the trees growing without being planted or cultivated because that also takes many years. Because when renting the field, the renter had one objective, to plant crops in the field and reap the profits. Therefore, he's not granted a share of the profits that come about without his efforts because he's a short-term renter and not a long-term renter. He can take the square footage, the space where these trees grow and consider it as if it would have been a crop and benefit from the crop that would have been. Provided that these trees grew in places suitable for crop planting. But if the trees came out in places which cannot have crops planted, he gets no extra credit. That is, if he was short-term. However, if he received a contract for seven years or more, he has a whole cycle. He can have the long-term solid beams of the wild fig tree. You ever see a, a massive beam and say, which tree did that grow in? It's like, that's like bigger than any tree I saw. You know? so, obviously, big beams don't grow in little trees. His time comes to depart the field. There were plantings there that did not ripen yet. They're not ready to be sold. The marketplace time didn't kick in yet. He can do an estimate of its value and take credit from the landlord. Just as the sharecropper and the landowner divide the crops. Also, they divide. They prorate. Let's say the guy is in for a third, so he gets a third. And the landlord gets two-thirds of the cash of the straw and stubble as well, which is a lower quality produce, but it's a secondary produce of the field. The same goes in the vineyard. Just as they divide the wine, they also divide the twigs of the vines, which make very nice wood. However, the, uh, the boards that hold the vines, the vines are draped over these boards. In Conway, some shoot if they purchase them in partnership. So they divide it. But if they belong to one particular person, one particular one of them, the one who bought it keeps it. So also, anything similar. So you're talking about a vineyard has rods or sticks or some type of building situation where the vines are led to grow over. We're talking about that support. If somebody enters into a sharecropping agreement from another fellow to plant, on average, it will, pre- it will present 10 bad vines for every saw. Others say for every 100, 10%. So not 100% of the vines are great. More than that, he has to pay for everything. You'd base on a cabal. Since a larger than ordinary percentage of the crop was not viable, we assume that the loss came because of his, the sharecropper's, negligence. Therefore, we make a further assumption and postulate that had he not been negligent, the entire crop would have been good. That's the deal of Megal Gomenol Vesakel. You'd be Zamakabal Sadeh Mechavedeh Gileosis. What if somebody rents a field from another in a sharecropping agreement and the field does not produce? If it could produce at least two saw more than the investment that he invested in it, he should work it. Because when somebody enters into a sharecropping agreement, you know what he commits to? He says, I will rise early in the morning, I will plow your land, I will sow it, I will reap it, I will tie it in sheaves, thresh it, make it grain, make grain heaps, and you'll receive half or whatever the other deal was, or less or whatever. And I will take the rest with re- as a reward for my hard work, my expenditures. And the guy has to work hard and expend. Obviously, he did something wrong. He was, you never, should never have a lazy sharecropper. You have a lazy sharecropper to ruin your whole day. You'd on the If somebody takes a sharecropping relationship in a field from someone else, 
And after he takes possession of it, he lets it lie fallow. He says, never mind, I'm not going to plant. I'm tired. I'm having an exhausting decade. So an appraisal should be done. How much can this produce? And he has to pay the landowner the part that he would have gotten. The fact that you didn't plant is not the landowner's fault. Because that's what you, the language of an agreement of a sharecropper is. If I let it lay fallow, I will not work. I shall make I'll pay the best that would have been produced. The same applies if you only let a portion lie fallow. Why is he obligated to pay? Because he didn't set a set fee. You see, there's an interesting law here. If he said, I'll give you a set fee, you might be able to argue and say he doesn't have to give him anything. Because when somebody says something unrealistic, he doesn't mean it. And that's why betting is a problem in Torah law, because you never believe you're going to lose the bet. You always believe you're going to win the bet. So when the guy collects the bet, he's like stealing. Here he didn't throw out an amount. He just says, I will pay you as if it would have produced the best. Therefore, at that moment, he made a real commitment. But if he said, if I will let it follow and not work, I'll give you a hundred dinars. He never meant it. This is considered like an asmachta, which is similar to a bet. He only gives that which it could have produced. He gives him his percentage of that which it could have produced. 14, the closing paragraph of today's portion. Of, of chapter 8. If somebody enters into a sharecropping agreement with the landlord, he's going to plant sesame seeds. And plants wheat. And the wheat produces money equivalent to what the sesame seeds would have produced. Being that he gets paid, all the landlord can do with regard to his being upset that he, did, that he broke the agreement, planting wheat instead of sesame seeds, he can put a complaint in the complaint box. Because financially he got what he wanted. But if it produced less, when planting the wheat caused it to produce less of a net profit, then sesame seeds would have, then the sharecropper has to pay the landowner what it would have produced, his share, what it would have produced, had he planted sesame seeds. Why? Because that's the agreement. You broke the agreement. What if it produced wheat? Made so much money, much more than he would have made through sesame seeds. So breaking the agreement was a bonus. Who gets the money? The answer is, they divide it as per the same sharecropping agreement. Half, a third, or a quarter. Even though, let's face it, the landowner is benefiting because the other guy broke the agreement, so what? That's the way the cookie crumbles. End of chapter 8. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchah is the laws of Schirus. Employer-employee relationships. Pei Chi'i, chapter 9. Today's chapter deals with a very common theme, and that is, what about overtime? What if the employer has expectations of the employee to start his day earlier than everybody else, to end his day later than anyone else, to put in more than the traditional amount of hours? Can the employer demand that of the employee? Does the employer have to feed the employee? What about dessert? Just a sandwich or also dessert? These are some of the questions we're going to discuss. And of course, needless to say, all of this is based in the Mishnah and Talmud. Tractate Baba Metzia deals with these issues. There's a chapter which begins with the words, if somebody hires employees. So let's look at today's Rambam. If somebody hires workers, the Yomar tells them, I want you to report to work earlier than usual. You know, the normal workday is 9 to 5. I want you to show up at 6. Well, instead of leaving at 5, I want you to stay till 8. Can the employer make the employee work these crazy hours? So the Rambam brings down from the local tradition, the local accepted culture is that employees do not start early and do not finish late. He can't coerce them to do so. He can't hold back their pay and make them put in these crazy hours. In a place where the accepted culture is that the employer feeds the employee, in a place where he also provides dried figs and dates and the like, what we call dessert, Yisapik, let it provide. Hakal, if it can mean all according to the prevailing local custom. Now the question is, what are the wages? What are the accepted wages? How much does the worker get paid for the particular labor he's doing? When a person hires a worker, and he tells him, I'm going to pay you for the particular type of work you're doing, like one or two or more people in our community get paid for that type of work. How do you determine? He says, You take a look at the person who would work for the least amount of money to do that particular work, and the highest paid, and then you take an average. So that if some get paid higher and some get paid lower, you average it out. And that's what the worker gets paid if the employer tells him, like other people in our community. Now comes the situation where an agent is in between. He's using an employment agency. 
He says to his proxy, go hire me workmen to do a particular type of work. I'm going to pay three zoos a day. What's three zoos a day? Minimum wage. That's the least amount anybody pays. Three zoos a day. The agent went and promised them four zoos a day. The agent is promising more than the owner promises. If the agent tells them, don't worry, I'll guarantee you're going to get four a day. Then he has to pay them four zoos a day. What do you mean? But the owner, the employer, only promised three. How does he pay them four? I'm glad you asked. He takes from the employer three zoos per day per worker. And he takes out of his own pocket one per day. Because he promised four. Nobody authorized him to promise four, but he did. So he has to back it up. What if the agent says to them, listen, you're the boss will determine your pay. Well, what does that mean? That's pretty vague. The boss has to pay them according to the prevailing custom. I guess what we would call in our world minimum wage. Three zoos a day. What if there were some people who would work this type of work for three zoos a day? Others would get paid better and work for four zoos a day, which is 25% more. Being that there are some people who work for three, the employer can get away with paying the workers three. What about the fact that when the workers came, they intended to get four? Because they were led to believe it's going to be good. They can put a complaint in the complaint box. That's all they can do. There's no real commitment that they can litigate here. Does it apply that the employer can pay them three zoos a day? Instead of four, when the level of their work is not obviously worth more. In other words, if their work is, a level of, is at a level of excellence, maybe they can demand more. If the level of work was obviously recognizable as special, it's worth four. We, tell, we force the employer to give them four. Because if his agent had not suggested four to them, they wouldn't have put in the extra effort to excel in their work. What if the owner, the boss, the employer told his agent, go hire me workers for four zoos a day, he's being generous, but the agent is a wise guy. The agent hired up for three a day, so the agent offered less than he was empowered to. Even though their work is worth four, but being that he was clear that they're getting three zoos a day, all they get is three, so they keep because they accepted to do this. They can complain against the agent, but past complaints, they can't do anything. If the owner told them three, Zoos a day. And the agent went. The owner told the agent three zoos a day. And the agent went and told them four. The owner when they said, we undertake. Whatever the boss says. When the agent tells them four, they intend when they say we're going to do whatever the boss wants to pay us, their intention is more than four. Their intention is they will excel and they want to get more. The people, therefore, show me we appraise Masha also that which they did in Shabbat Arbab. It's worth four zoos a day. When they can pay four zoos a day. Then any do it. It's not known what it's worth. In Shabbat perhaps it's not worth special. All they get is three because that's what. The guy said to begin with, what if the owner said four? Zuz a day, and the agent went to Amalabai, told him three. The owner lay and they said to him, whatever the boss says, even though their work is worth four, they get three, because they heard three, and they accepted three. Dalit. Now, what happens when there's a no-show? Somebody hires workers, and they fooled this owner. The owner fooled them, and they didn't show up, or they showed up, there was no work. All they have is complaints. When does this apply? They didn't actually go. For example, he hired donkey drivers, and the donkey drivers did not actually show up. But if the donkey drivers showed up with their donkey carts, they didn't find produce. The workers showed up to irrigate a field in Matsusadu. They found an irrigated field. I'm sorry, they went to work a field and found a wet field. They went to irrigate a field and found that it was filled with water. It depends. If the owner checked out the worksite at night the night before, and he has a pain, that these workers are necessary, and the workers can't collect anything because it's not his fault. What should he do? Some out of control stuff happened. But if he did not inspect the work site the night before, he has to pay them their wage as one would pay someone who is getting paid for not working, which we learned earlier is less. Because you can't compare somebody who comes with a donkey cart that's laden to somebody who takes a donkey cart that's full or that's empty. And he's doing the type of work by not doing it. When does this apply? But if the worker started the job and then he changed his mind, even in the middle of the day, he can change his mind and hear the Rambam establishes a principle from the Mishnah of the Gemara that no one can force people to work for them if they don't want to. No, people are not slaves. An employee is not a slave. The guy agreed to work. Half a day went by. He says, never mind. This is not what I had in mind. He can walk off the job. 
No one is changing him. How's that? Shenemar, as the verse says, Kilib and Yisrael Avodim. God says, the Jewish people are my servants. The only people we are servants and slaves to, the only entity we are servants and slaves to is Hashem. The Le'avodim Avodim, we are not servants and slaves to any human being. So therefore, you don't like the job, you walk off the job. No one can do anything to you. Okay, but if you want to take a job to get paid for Zuz a day and you only work half a day, what happens? How do you get paid? The case says, what's the law of an employee who changes his mind once he starts? You prorate that which he did, and that's what he gets paid. In Kablin, who, what if he is someone who undertook to do the job like a contractor would? I'm going to complete the job for X amount of dollars. Then how do you deal with a half-completed job? You estimate what he's going to do. Whether the price, the prevailing price went down once he hired them or not. Whether the labor value went down or not. You evaluate what he's going to do. In other words, the contractor undertook to complete a job. You evaluate what the value of that is. If he undertook to harvest standing rain for two sloyim, he harvested half, he left half. You see what is left. If it's worth six dinars, he gives him a shekel. If it's worth six dinars, he gives him a shekel. If it's worth two dinars, he gives him a shekel. He only did half the work. And here, we use various titles of currencies. So let's go back to some notes here. A sella is worth four dinarim. So that's number one. A shekel is worth two dinarim. So that if the price of work doubled, the contractor is not paid anything at all. He's not held responsible if the price of labor increases beyond that measure and is never required to pay from his own resources. Whereas he's given the option to complete his work, receiving the eight dinarim. Okay. When does all this apply? When the employees undertook to do a task that not done, there will be an immediate loss. If you don't do the task, the owner's going to lose money. So he counted on these people. But something that will involve a loss. What could that be? For example, he has flax soaking in the vat, and you can't just leave it in the vat. Or he hired a donkey driver to bring flutes for a funeral or a wedding, to bring musical instruments for a funeral or a dirge or a wedding, and the guy does not do it the day of the wedding or the day of the funeral. Tomorrow, I don't need it. Timing is everything. Or similar scenarios. Whether somebody is an employee or a contractor, he can't change his mind because he's being relied upon. There is reliance here. Unless something happened beyond his control. Like he took ill. Or he had an immediate relative pass away. People are allowed to urgently take off for a funeral. There's a beautiful, adorable story I love to tell of the boss who came to this employee and said, I'm going to ask you a philosophical question, but it may make a difference whether you continue to work for me or not. He says, okay. He says, my question to you is, do you believe in life after death? He says, yeah, I guess so. He says, that's good. Because yesterday you took off to go to your grandmother's funeral and I met your grandma in Starbucks. So thank God you believe in life after death. So, you know, a funeral is a funeral, even if she ends up in Starbucks later. But if there's no urgency, and he changes his mind, he can either hire other people and bill them, or he can actually fool them. You know, sometimes people in the ninth inning, they blackmail you. How can he fool them? I know I promised you one seller, but I'm desperate. I'll give you two sellers. And then he doesn't keep his word. They fooled him. He fools them. Until they finish. Then he can say, hey, I had reliance upon you, and you misled me. That's why I have to mislead you. Even if he paid them the extra money, he can demand it back. How can he hire on their account? He can hire other employees. They can finish the job. It shouldn't get ruined. Whatever overage he pays these last employees more than he would have paid the first. He takes from the first. What's the limit? Up to the amount of their pay. What if he has their money? He can hire people to finish the job. Up to 40 or 50 zoos per day per worker. Even though he hired three or four workers. If he can't find employees to hire for the same fee, he promised them. But if he can, they said, go take and hire of these so it not be lost. Whether he's an employee or, employee or a contractor, all they can have is complaints. And you evaluate what was done, and the contractor, what he would have done. Somebody hires a worker, and suddenly the king takes him into the labor force of the king. He shouldn't tell him. Here I am. Come work if you want. He has to pay him a prorated amount of what he did. It's not his fault that he was taken by the government. 
Somebody hires a worker to irrigate the field from this and this river. Halfway down the, that day, half through that day, the river dries up. If this river never dries up, they only get paid that which they did. And now the river dried up, they can't get paid. Or if it's the culture of that place that the residents will dam the river and it'll dry up. Also, they only get paid what they did. Because the employees knew that sometimes the city people dam the river. If the river can sometimes be dried up on its own, he has to pay them the, their pay for the whole day. Because he should have made it clear to them that this could happen. If he hired them to irrigate the field, and then a downpour of rain came. And who needs them to irrigate the field? The field is soaked. They get paid what they did, and that's all. What if the river uh, flooded and irrigated the field? The river rose and irrigated the field on its own. Nesalim calls Haram, he has to pay them the entire day's pay. Why? Because the fact that the river rose, that's their luck. They were, their prayers were answered from heaven. When does he supply the payo with a worker? If was a sharecropper, he asked deal with a sharecropper is if he irrigates the field four times a day. He'll take half the produce. And sharecroppers who only irrigate the field twice a day only get a quarter. And they didn't have to do it another two times. He still gets his half. Because our rule of thumb is that a sharecropper is in a sense like a partner, and is more like a partner and less like an employee. Zion. What if somebody hires a worker? To do a particular task, which is a day's work. This worker is expedient. And this worker finished it in a half a day. Whatever he needed to do in a full day, he finished it in a half a day. You notice that people that get paid by the hour usually work slow. People who get paid by the job usually work fast. I wonder why. If he has another type of work similar to it, or easy as this is, he can have his employee spend the other half a day doing that. But he has nothing for him to do. He has to pay him like, an, like a worker who doesn't work. What if he was a person who digs the ground, or he was a person who works the earth, where ordinarily he works very hard, he's physically active. He's not going to do work, he's going to get sick, he needs to be busy. He has to give his entire wage, even though he is idle because he does not benefit from being idle. Idle is not good for him. Somebody hires a worker to bring him something from place A to place B. And he went. Somebody said, go to San Diego and pick up this and this load at this and this address. And there was nothing there. The load was not at that address. He has to pay him 100% of the pay. What if he paid him to bring uh, sticks, pieces of wood, to support the vineyard? And he went to the lumberyard and they didn't have it. And he didn't bring it. What if he hired him to bring cabbage or prunes for a sick person? Because that's what the doctor prescribed for him. And he went, and he's here with the cabbage, he's here with the prunes, but by the time he comes back, he finds the patient died. Or the patient is all better. Not tell him, listen, tell him, you can keep the cabbage and keep the prunes, because I have no use for them instead of getting paid. No. He has to pay him the entire salary. So also anything similar. What if somebody hires a worker to work in his field? The only problem is when he showed the guy his field, he accidentally showed him his neighbor's field. This could be a problem. This could ruin your whole day. They had all the He showed him the neighbor's field. And the guy worked all day in the neighbor's field. He has to pay him his full salary. Then he tries to collect from the neighbor. But the employee is certainly not at fault. If somebody hires a worker to work with him with straw and stubble and the like, which is a lower level value to clear a field or whatever. Instead of me paying you, take whatever, take the straw and take the stubble. You can't force the employee to do that because he made up to pay him. He has to pay him. But if in the very beginning he told him, here's your pay and I'll take mine, and you don't listen to him. This has to be very, very clear to begin with. Now, all of this is only talking about if the value is correct. Okay. And finally, what if the worker, the employee, is working in the field of the employer or on the job site, and he finds a valuable find? He gets to keep it for himself. It's not the employers, it's the employees. Even though he said to him, listen, I am contracting your time. I say, you work for me today, your time is mine. Certainly, if he told him, for me today, so therefore, collecting a lost object is definitely not included in hoeing. 
So therefore, the employee gets to keep what he found. However, what if he hired him to collect lost and found objects? For example, the river dried up and he says, go to the river and find fish. Go to the river and see, go find any lost and found items. He says, go find the fish in the swamp area. Then he hired him to find things. Anything he finds in Malabias belongs to the owner. Even though he found a wallet full of dinars, it also belongs to the employer. Now, there's a comment here that says, unless he sees this wallet full of dinner, he says, hey, if anybody's listening, I quit. And he goes and takes it for himself. Now, that's something else. End of chapter 9.